ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Now, uh, if you were listening to, speaking of the quiz, last week, you heard us talking about uh, Stephen King. And uh, I was a big fan. Uh, I must say I, I slacked off a little bit in recent years, but uh, back in the day, God, I read just about everything he wrote. Well, for 60 years now, he's terrified millions of readers and he's written countless books, rewritten popular culture at the same time. Now, impossible to overstate how influential Stephen King is. And no single writer has dominated the landscape of genre writing like he has for that length of time. In fact, I told you, the only author in history to have it more than 30 books, <laughs> number one, 30. So why does he remain so incredibly beloved? Well, joining us on Overnights this morning to answer the question is horror author himself, Bev Vincent. Successful in his own right, but Bev's also become known as the expert chronicler of Stephen King and has also collaborated with him on his anthology, anthology book, Fright or Flight. And very happy to say that uh, Bev Vincent joins us now on the line. Hi, and thanks very much for your time. Good morning, Sam. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Can you tell us briefly about uh, yourself and uh, recall the first movie, book, or TV show that that frightened you? <laughs> oh, so my name is Bev Vincent. Um, I'm in Texas, so it's not the early hours of the morning here. It's uh, well, it's later in the morning. Um, I'm originally from Canada. Um, I am both a scientist uh, by day and a writer by early morning, uh, late in the evening. <laughs> Uh, the first uh, thing, I, I remember I was about 10 years old, I picked up a copy of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination in a discount bin, and those stories were formative. They've stuck with me to this very day. Yeah. For television, I would have to say there were some early night gallery, uh, it was oh, an anthology yeah. series, yeah, sort right. of like Twilight Zone. Yeah. Some of those episodes I wasn't supposed to watch, but I snuck in and sort of watched them from behind the chair, and they terrorized me. Mm. Yeah. How do you go, Bev, uh, from I would, would be the very structured world of science into horror writing? Well, uh, it's it's an ongoing process. Um, I get up every morning and I uh, about five o'clock and I do my writing uh, gig. And then I have breakfast and transition into the, the, the day job universe. Um, over the years, I've managed to uh, change my day job from one that is purely scientific. Uh, we do analytical instrumentation mm. into something that's more writing based. Um, so yeah, I pretty much transitioned myself so that there's not that huge schism between the two. Um, interestingly enough, I don't use my scientific day job very much in my writing but I use writing in my day job quite a bit. Mm. A question I love to ask uh, writers, what's the process for you? Is it, is it regimented? You say you start with that, so you sit down for a period of time with your, with your coffee and, and away you go, or do you go away and come back to it? So what's the process? Uh, I, for me, it's, uh, it's a very much a routine. Like I said, I get up at five, I spend about 30 minutes exercising, and then I dive straight in. Right. Uh, and it's every day. It's uh, maybe a little bit later on the weekends, but I try to keep up with it every day. I always have maybe two or three things going at the same time. So if I hit a stumbling block with one, I can jump over to another and not lose mm. valuable time because I, mean, I really only do have maybe two hours a day for the writing. Right. And what does it feel like to be, and you are now, a part of uh, the horror history with uh, the great Stephen King? <laughs> I don't really uh, think of it that often, but I, I'm close friends with a guy named Richard Chismar, who's the the publisher of Cemetery Dance, and he 
published some of Steve's stories in his magazine early on, and he's done limited editions. And, and we've both been granted this very unusual access to somebody who we admired for a long time from afar. And we, you know, we get in touch with each other by text or by phone, and we sort of pinch each other and say, you know, can you believe that we've... <laughs> That this has happened to us, that this is really part of our lives. It's it's very surreal. Well, as I say, uh, I read so much Stephen King, early Stephen King, uh, Carrie, and my favourite book I said to my listeners last week uh, is still uh, The Stand, and uh, he just creates these characters, and you think, oh, my goodness, how does he come up with it? In The Stand, of course, it's, it's Randall Flagg. I mean, he's an extraordinary writer, isn't he? Yes, absolutely. And for the first time, he's granted permission for other writers to write in his universe. Yeah. And there's going to be an anthology next year, which is stories of the stand, yeah. but not the characters that we know. It's going to be all the other characters, new characters, new adventures, all the other things that are going on in the world during that book. Yeah, well, he's, as I say, you get enthralled in a, in a King book. He's so descriptive, and his characters are just so, goodness me, they are. They're, they're just horrible. I mean, um, how did you come to know him uh, personally and then professionally? Um, it's, it's, a, it's, sort of, it's a strange journey, and I don't know that anybody else could ever repeat it. Yeah. Uh, it started in the early days of the Internet when I got in, uh, active on Stephen King groups where people were just eagerly talking about his stuff to a point where Cemetery Dance invited me to write a column about the news, about, you know, reviews of stuff and forthcoming books. And so I wrote that and he read the magazine and so he became familiar with my, hmm. you know, how, my approach. And it just sort of grew to the point where we became pen pals, both with him and his wife independently. And yeah, it's just something that has grown over the last 20 or 25 years to the point where, you know, now we exchange emails regularly to recommend what we're reading or what we're uh, mm. watching on television and, you know, getting to work with him on the anthology. And it's, it's been quite a journey. Well, he's impossible to stop. I mean, he just keeps going, doesn't he? I mean, what an incredibly uh, creative man he is. I mean, do you know what his process is? I mean, is he uh, regimented with his writing as well? It just occurs to me that uh, something pops into his head, then away he goes. Does he write quickly? Does he write over a number of months? Because he's just so incredibly prolific. I think he's probably as regimented as what I described earlier, but he has a larger window to work with since it's his day job as well. Yeah. But he gets up and he works for X amount of hours in the morning. When he was younger, he used to have a couple of projects going at the same time. He'd be you know, revising one and writing something new. Um, he says he has slowed down somewhat in recent years mm. uh, in terms of you know how much he can get done in a given day of new material. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he used to say that he wrote every day except for Christmas, New Year's Day, and his birthday. And then he would later say, well, that was a lie, because if he was writing, he actually wrote on those days, too. Yeah. But then he would take breaks in between projects. Yeah. So Stephen King selected you to be the first to read the last three volumes of his uh, The Dark Tower series. I mean, describe for this is what that meant to you uh, as an experience for, for, for you. Uh, that, that, that was an ask. Uh, you know, I, I, people had been asking me when I was going to write a book about King's work. And to me, that just seemed like such a daunting project at the time, because even back at that time, which was about 2002 or three, hmm. he had, you know, 40 plus books. And But when I found out he was going to be finishing the Dark Tower series, I thought, well, here is something that spans his entire writing career. He started working on it when he was 19 or 20. Hmm. 
and has tentacles that go into all of his other books. And I thought, well, here's something that I could work on and, and say something meaningful about the bigger body of work. Mm. And so, you know, I just sort of hat in hand sent off this fax at the time asking, you know, here's my idea. Here's the book I'd like to write. And it'd be wonderful if I could have it ready to come out right after the seventh Dark Tower book does. And the only way that could happen is if you would let me have the first draft manuscripts wow. of the books. And so they showed up the next day. Yeah. Uh, 25 pounds of manuscripts. Uh, no NDA or anything like that. The only restriction I had was that there was a little line at the bottom that says, just remember, Stephen King knows where you live. <laughs> and, and, and that, that, that's all the warning you need to know to, to uh, not uh, step yeah. on line. <laughs> Bev, Bev, that would scare me. <laughs> but the thing with him, uh, look, yes, it is a horror as a genre, but uh, he also, in just about every book, investigates much deeper societal and psychological issues, doesn't he? Which, you know, attracts our imagination. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, and, and, you know, people think of him as a horror writer, but really he writes heavily in the crime genre, uh, a number of things that are mainstream and, and but all of these allow him to look at the different aspects of humanity. Mm. I mean, I've always said that if he wrote a romance novel, I would probably read it and enjoy it because mostly for me, it's about the characters and what's going on with them. And as you said, he creates such, well, sometimes terrible, but sometimes wonderful characters. Mm. And, and then he throws something at them, whether it's something like domestic abuse or, you know, being trapped in a car with a rabid dog or, you know, being bullied at the prom or whatever yeah. to see how they react. Mm. And we're with them all the way to say, how would we react in those circumstances? And it's mm. always, to me, it always seems credible what he does with them. I'm just assuming that these books of his, I'm thinking about all of them uh, as I'm speaking to you. How many people could create a horror movie about a car? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, he, he's, he went through a period where he tried to be very reductive, yeah. you know, trapped in a hotel, trapped in a car. Yeah. And one of the extremes of that is Gerald's game where the whole story takes place with a woman trapped in a bed. Yes. You know, so, you know, it's, and there's, he's got a short story where a guy's trapped in an outhouse. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's, yeah. there's big scale, like the stand where you you know, the world is your playing field and then, you know, reduce it down to very claustrophobic places. Yeah. And then he can write and God, I think he wrote it. Uh, and it was a novella. He wrote it more than 40 years ago. Uh, and it's a lot of people's favorite film, the Shawshank Redemption he wrote. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of people who don't realize, uh, some of the things that have been made in the movies they deliberately didn't market them as Stephen King adaptations because they didn't want the audience to come in with a preconceived notion. Mm. Uh, the first time that really happened was with Stand By Me, which was based on his novella The Body. And Rob Reiner created this, you know, coming of age story, which has horrific story to it because it's about a dead little boy. You know, how can that not be horrific? But yeah. it's really, uh, you know, for somebody who grew up in the 60s or 70s, like I did, you really identify with that bonding of the kids and this free world that they lived in where they could just go off for a day or two and the parents didn't worry about them. And, mm. uh, and there are other things, other movies where people don't necessarily immediately associate them with King if they're not, you know, already King fans like the green mile and yeah. Dolores Claiborne and things like that. Yes. And, uh, Oh, and Annie Wilkes in misery. I mean, it, it just created all of these incredible characters. By the way, what were his uh, primary literally uh, literary influences when he was uh, just growing up and beginning? 
Well, you know, he 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 read widely as a kid because he lived. They moved around a lot, and he was alone a lot. And so he read, you know, all the comics, the and what he calls the EC horror comics of the time with the monsters. Um, he also read a lot of the the dime store paperbacks, crime novels. Right. But he was influenced, I think, in a large part by a variety of things. Richard Matheson uh, is somebody who he names often as somebody who created horror that wasn't in Transylvania or it wasn't in, you know, some sort of gothic setting. It was in real town America. And that touched him a lot. And Bradbury, to a certain extent, uh, Poe a little bit, uh, an early horror writer named Arthur Machen, uh, John D. MacDonald as a crime novelist uh, who wrote the introduction to his first short story collection. Uh, yeah, so I, I think he's absorbed a lot of things over the years, plus poetry, which is something wow. people wow. don't always really pay much attention to. But he studied poetry intensely while he was in college. And if you read him widely like I have, uh, you see there's lots of characters who are poets mm. uh, or who can just sort of toss off uh, a line of poetry in a, in a moment that, where it's apropos. And, uh, you know, of course, the Dark Tower series was, you know, inspired by Robert Browning's child role into the Dark mm. Tower game. Mm. And uh, I, I yeah. think people don't really consider that so much. No, interesting when you, when you talk about him and his own life experience and spending a lot of time on his own as a kid. I suppose that's a, a breeding ground, isn't it, to create these characters. Tell me, does he ever discuss, does he create the character first and then write around the character or the other way around? Well, it's in, you know, I have this book that came out a couple of years ago called Stephen King, his, a complete exploration of his work life and influences. And really what I was interested in, in that book was, you know, where did each book come from? Because, you know, the big question he always gets asked is, you know, where do you get your ideas, which is impossible to answer. But yeah, the question yeah. you can answer is, where did you get the idea for this specific story? And often it's something very esoteric. It's a flash. It's a scene. It's a moment. And that moment doesn't always make it into the the final story in the way that he imagined it. But it's the the seed that got planted that created the the story. And sometimes it's a character situation. Uh, his most recent book, Holly, uh, is, is heavily influenced by the the COVID pandemic, and he wanted to write about a COVID funeral. Mm. Uh, and then he'd read about these uh, elderly people who uh, they were discovered to be serial killers. They had bodies buried in their backyard. And so those two things tied together to make the most recent book. Mm. But but I think that there's a, an image which he then sort of worries over and uh, you know, like an oyster on a grain of sand. And, you, you know, he develops the pearl around it. And sometimes it doesn't go and sometimes it does. But the characters... I think, have to come fairly early in the process. Yes, and one of my listeners has just sent me a text to say, and I was going to ask you, but uh, I'm quite convinced she would know. And when you think about it now, and she's thanking us for paying homage to the great Stephen King, but he's he's 76, yeah? He is, yep. Wow. No signs of uh, slowing down. He's got a, no. a new book already queued up for early this year, which is uh, going to be a big book of novellas and short stories. He's got the next book in line. He's thinking of writing the third book in the Talisman Blackhouse series. So, Yeah. Look, I'll talk to you about the movies in a tick, but uh, Davey Pryor, one of my mates and a, and a great producer here at the ABC, wanted me to ask you this question. Did Stephen predict the rise of populism in the US with the Greg Stilson character, great character, in The Dead Zone? Well, you know, it's certainly easy to go back and look at that book now in... With, with our 2023-2024 knowledge, 
and say absolutely. Mm. I mean, Steve grew up in the '60s. Um, he, you know, he was in college in the, the the '60s and '70s when there was a lot of strife and turbulence going on. You know, the Nixon era, the Vietnam era. So he was certainly aware of you know governmental overreach and populism. I think at that point, you know, mm. he was part of a a subset of society with his long hair and his dirty clothes <laughs> that you know got looked down on. And so, I, yeah, I mean, it's. It, it's it's uh, easy to believe that might be the case, and it's certainly he has written a lot of things over the years where you see a certain amount of prescience there. We'd say, well, he's got his finger on the pulse. I guess I would say that's probably yeah. uh, the way I would sum it up. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as the films are concerned, I mean, some people say, oh, it was a great book, but not a great movie. That they have been on occasion a bit hit and miss. The Dead Zone was terrific, and and yes. so was Carrie, and I, and I loved Misery, and Christine was well done at Cujo. But sometimes, uh, I don't know whether Pet Cemetery worked. What do you feel? Um, I think the original version of it worked pretty well. Yeah. Uh, that little boy was uh, pretty darn creepy. Yeah, he was uh, he ever. I'm not quite so fond of the remakes and the. No, it was recently no. a sort of like a prequel, and I didn't think that they worked quite as well. Yeah. He uses, too, uh, the supernatural to great effect in his storytelling. Um, so, uh, you know, cre- creating these experiences. Would Derry and the Overlook Hotel be good examples of that? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of debate about the Overlook Hotel is, you know, why is it like it was? And I think Steve's idea is that it, because there were a lot of bad things that happened there. Mm. Uh, he has two towns that he's written about extensively. Castle Rock, yes. which uh, started in the dead zone. It's just a place where some bad things have happened over the years. But mm. Quite a number of bad things. But Derry is different from Castle Rock. Derry first came in in the book It. And Derry seems to be a truly evil place. It was built on sour ground, sort of like the pet cemetery was. Yeah, right. And people who live there are deliberately evil, pernicious, you know, uh, neglectful, belligerent, violent. Yeah. And so when bad things happen there, as readers, I think we're less surprised because it just seems to be a bad place <laughs> well he's very good at writing about bad places isn't he very, very good yeah. yeah now he often plays and i don't know how many movies he played he's often in them he's often in the movies do you know how many oh i've lost count but they're probably a lot. About there's a lot yeah. 14. not as many as people think a lot of people think he was in all of them um and th- there's been a lot of movies that he hasn't been involved with but he he, he shows up usually in a comedic presence he does yeah uh for instance in uh the, the recent uh, there was a three season adaptation of mr mercedes where he's a murder victim yeah and all you do is <laughs> see him lying there with a knife stuck out of his head uh he got his start with a george romero movie back in the uh, probably late 70s early 80s where he both he and his wife were uh characters sitting on a Mm. You know, having a picnic, and they're, they're just you know hillbilly characters. That are it's it's funny. How many do you think? I reckon there's probably quite a few. Uh, some of the uh, the films and novellas that uh, we might even not even know are Stephen King's work. They're probably a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, in the back of my recent book, I tried to list everything that's been adapted. Oh, I think I got the vast majority of them. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people, I mean, I think there are the people who are like me who've read King avidly for a long number of time. And then there's just the people who like to go see movies. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that's clearly a Stephen King adaptation and sometimes less so. I mean, do you know that Children of the Corn is a Stephen King short story? Well, mm. Yes. Okay. But it doesn't really matter. Uh, they're terrible movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, speaking of the movies, and I, I thought the movie was great. He famously didn't like very much uh, Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. Yeah, he he had some interesting discussions with Kubrick during the filming of that. And of yeah. course, Kubrick was filming in England. And he was home in Maine. I think he only was on set very briefly. But yeah, Kubrick would call him up, you know, at random hours and ask him very strange existential questions. <laughs> which I think had him worried a little bit about what was going through the director's mind. He, he sort of sums up and says two things. He says, it's a beautiful car without an engine, the movie adaptation of the shining. And the other thing he says is that Kubrick's mm-hmm. film version is cold. Uh, okay. okay. You know, it ends with freezing. Whereas he feels that his novel burns hot and it ends with the uh, overlook hotel, spoiler alert, burning to the ground. Uh, that's his metaphor for the different uh, views of those things. Yeah. The other problem is, I think, the casting. And I think a lot of people would agree that Nicholson was cast for the way that Jack is at the end. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. We, but we see hints of that early on. Mm. And Shelley Duvall is certainly not the mm, no, um, no. self-motivated, empowered, purposeful mm. Wendy that we see in both the book and in... Yeah. Uh, Rebecca de Mornay, who did the same role in the miniseries remake. Yeah. By the way, is it true that Stephen began writing Misery on a desk that belonged to Rudyard Kipling? <laughs> he had a dream. He was flying to England and had a dream Yeah. Uh, about uh, this woman who sort of captured her favorite writer and bound a book with his skin. And he was so taken by it that when he got to England, and he has had habitual insomnia all his life. He couldn't sleep. So he asked the concierge for a quiet place to write. And he, the concierge led him to this desk and he wrote all night long. And when he went back to thank the concierge, that's when he was told that Rudyard Kipling had wrote, wow. written there wow. and had died there. Oh, oh my goodness. I bet he thought that was pretty cool. Well, he said there's certain things that you don't really need to know. <laughs> but I, I did a little bit of research into that, and it turns out that's probably not true. That yeah, okay. Died in the hospital, yeah, okay. But, uh, it makes a nice story, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, God, I bet he's a fun guy to spend time with, is he? I bet he, he is. is. Yeah. He is. Uh, he, he's, he's so unloving. People think that he's creepy because he he does this persona sometimes when he's in public yeah. and you know, he sort of gets his face looking one way and you know, the dark gestures and, and people like to play up around him. He did this, uh, credit card commercial back in the seventies or eighties where he's, you know, in the smoking jacket in the Transylvania place <laughs> with the bird on his shoulder. And, uh, I think that sort of set the ball in motion for who Stephen King was going to be as a public person, but he's not like that at all. He's, no. he's, he's great. No, I'll bet. So Bev, do you have a favorite King story or character? And, and if so, why? I would say that the book that I fall back on most frequently, and I, I read it recently to my wife is bag of bones. Ah, yeah. And it's a first person narrative from a writer. And so the whole book has a feel of, you know, sitting around the campfire and Steve's telling you the story. 
it's gotcha. all I did this and I did that and I wrote this and I was working on that. I mean, it, it's a great gothic ghost story and it has a companion piece uh, in my mind with Lisi's story. The two go together quite well. But it's, uh, I would say, I have a hard time picking favorites, but that's the one that I always sort of fall back on. And Mike Noonan is the writer character. Yeah, there you go. Well, as I said at the beginning, it is quite extraordinary, Bev, isn't it? I mean, uh, 60 novels, countless short stories, novellas, incredible body of work, and 30 number one bestsellers in, what, 50 years of activity. It's it's an amazing story, Stephen King. It is. It is. And... You know, some people look at him as being, you know, too prolific, which, you know, for a long time he got no good uh, critical evaluation because, you know, how could anybody who writes that much write well? well but I, does, I've been on yeah. a bit of a journey reading things to my wife, and one of the things I went back to was the body. Yeah. And I had thought that, you know, there was a transition in his writing in like the 99, 2000 when he moved to Scribner that he was becoming more literary. But when I read uh, The Body to my wife, read it out loud, I was saying, this man has been a literary stylist from the very get-go. Yeah. You know, but there's the other stuff, you know, the short stories with the, you know, the manglers and things like that, which are, you know, just mm. cheap thrills. But when, when he really wants to, he has always been able to write really, really effective literary prose. Yes, he has. And uh, the other thing I would say, and I'm getting lots of text from my listeners telling me their favourite uh, Stephen King books and movies, Needful Things, that's another one. I enjoyed that book as well. And uh, Luke's a good big fan of The Stand, as am I. And look, yes, they are very American, but uh, they're, they're international as well because it's the way he writes, the characters he creates, and uh, he's so in so descriptive, really. I mean, it's just a marvellous career he's had, and uh, at 76, he's showing no signs of slowing down, is he? Absolutely not. Yeah. What if uh, the, my listeners want to find you, Bev? Can they find you online? Oh, I'm pretty much everywhere. Um, I have a website, bevvincent.com, which has a message board for people who'd like to interact uh, with the, a little group of people that we have there. Um, Twitter is my main social media platform. Uh, I always warn people that if they follow me on Twitter, they're going to find out maybe more than they want to know about my <laughs> political leanings. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm very vocal about my politics on Twitter. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I have Facebook and Blue Sky and all the other ones, but I would say Twitter and my website are the, the main vectors. Well, Bev, it's been a joy to talk to you, and I thank you so much for spending so much time with us to tell us all about the extraordinary Stephen King. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. This has been great. Thank you, Bev. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Bev Vincent. How cool was that? ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. 